You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Yeah, so the whole thing is, I feel like it's almost the end of the world. Like California, for instance, is banning all oil production. What are they going to do? How are they going to even power their Teslas? Yeah, I think it's 2035. They've outlawed the sale of any new gas-powered vehicles, right? And meanwhile, you're not allowed to... I think now no new oil wells can be drilled anywhere in California. And meanwhile, we're not getting oil from Russia anymore. Saudi Arabia is hitting peak oil, or they did like a decade ago. Like, literally, what do people think is going to happen if you just play this out even one year? It's a real good question. And then, look, we can kind of get on California, but Texas, you know, you talk about California being a blue state, Texas being a red state, they're having rolling blackouts at times, and they're concerned about that. So it's just really strange when you look at it and you look at someone like China, for instance, just came out. I don't know, two or three days ago, might have been a week ago, and basically said their coal-fired plants, they're at all-time highs, demands at an all-time high, production's at an all-time high. And I think they said they have plans for just astronomical capacity through 2025, you know, for coal. So this is what I understand. Like, literally, when I did this podcast with 
General Spaulding, who was the top White House advisor for China, he said, we're entering this new Cold War. But the difference is the U.S. is going to be the one with the empty shelves and China is going to have the full shelves. And are we eyes wide shut going into this or what's what's the story? And I'm not just talking about energy like grad students. Nobody's immigrating to the U.S. anymore or, you know, we're stopping as much immigration as possible. So we're leaving out like heavy amounts of talent that used to fuel Silicon Valley. And meanwhile, Powell like he kind of wants a recession. People think we're in a recession now. This is not a recession. Recessions are hell and industrial production goes down and wages go down and unemployment goes up. All the reverse is happening now. So what's going to happen when things actually get bad? Or will the Fed, will Powell, is he just playing a, a game of, uh, he's just bluffing. I think that's the other question is like, bring inflation down from 9% to 5%. And then when some of the numbers for things like unemployment start to tick up, be like, oh, we did what we could at the Fed and we don't want to push it too far because we don't want to deprive people of their livelihood, blah, blah, blah. I kind of think that, but I don't know, just everyone is going crazy these days. You just have no idea. And I'm an optimist, as you guys know. Well, one of the things that's interesting, I think I just saw today come across the screen and it was a headline, right? It was, I saw it on my computer, then it popped on my phone. It was definitely a panic headline that mortgage rates hit 5.8%. And I'm like, was that really that bad? I mean, my first mortgage was definitely higher than that. Yeah, in 2006, my mortgage was 8.5%. I get what people are saying. I get maybe that does have an effect. But I don't know. That doesn't seem outrageous that it's at 5.8%. But I do. I think a lot of what Omid said, when things settle down and come in a little bit, I just think that they're trying to cool things off. But yeah, there, there is a risk, right? I mean, I just don't see how, and this plays in a little bit to what we were talking about last time with Omen's famous oil trade, where I just, there's just a disconnect when you see all the charts of global usage of fossil fuels and the green movement and EVs. It just doesn't seem logical, the pace at which things are moving that we can sustain this move towards green this quickly right and like nothing wrong with me right. like no, hey if we can do everything with with wind power then go for it but it's just not possible right and you were mentioning nuclear power earlier why don't we go for nuclear power well that's probably political right I guess so. I'm no expert but I don't think it's hard to make the argument that nuclear is actually very green like the big events like Fukushima get all the attention. But when you consider most of those nuclear power plants were built like 50 years ago and how much... Yeah, or 70 years ago. Yeah, and how much computer technology has advanced since then. And I believe just the science of nuclear power has advanced greatly. And then you look at the exogenous costs and risk of every other source of power. Like with a lot of the renewable stuff, it's just not predictable and we don't have battery capacity that's good enough, nearly good enough. And then even if we did, I'd wonder what like the environmental impact of having all these gigantic batteries that would store power for entire cities would be. And, you know, we know like coal and oil and gas and stuff has risks, but solar has risks, right? Like people fall off roofs. Like I, I think that's a non-zero. Is that a big solar risk? I, I believe <laughs> some, I, I don't want to go on the record, but there was a time where people would say like, if you look at 
the, the problem with solar panels is that someone has to go and install them somewhere that's usually not an easy place to install. But it, the point is, every kind of energy has pluses and downsides. But I feel like given how much the calculus has changed because of Russia and Ukraine and everything in the past six months, like I am surprised there isn't a mass political movement to bring back nuclear power. Or bring power, period. Like, they're just shutting down all our sources of power. Let's be honest. If you're living in California right now, left, right, center, Gavin Newsom, who we think is going to likely run for president in 2024, does not want rolling blackouts in his state. He does not want that. You can be the greenest guy in the world, but that person, whether it be Hollywood, you know, we, we see it all the time from the Hollywood set, right? That take their private jets to the global warming conferences. <laughs> if you're in California and you have your EV, you're driving your EVs, you're doing everything the right way, and it's 110 degrees there, and they're telling you you can't have any air conditioning, you know, and you're in your mid-70s and you're sitting there, you know, there's heat exhaustion, there's all kinds of, you're not okay with that. You're not okay with that. And there's a solution, there's an available solution. It just doesn't make sense that this is the path that we're going down. But the other funny thing about all this, and this is somewhat related, and this kind of relates a lot to what we've talked about in the past about kind of all the Wall Street stories, is if you're talking about China coal, rolling blackouts in California, Texas, battery capacity, anything right now, it's real easy. What's the headline on all of it? Well, P Putin did it. Putin, right. Putin's war in Ukraine. Economic situations, inflation, Putin caused it. And it's such a cheap, easy out. And I'm not saying there's not an effect, there's not a market effect, but to act as if that's the catch-all is just disingenuous. It's an easy out. And look, the easy out in the past, right, is to attack big oil, just greedy big oil. But if you look at a lot of these big oil companies, and, and I don't know them well enough, but I've invested in some from time to time. And if you read articles and read research, and there's a lot of people that have been invested in big oil that think they've gone too green too fast. They've definitely poured like billions into research on all sorts, every type of green energy possible. Yeah. So, I mean, like Exxon's probably the leading developer of green energy technologies. Right. Right. So, but which reminds me, speaking of the Wall Street stories, and oh man, I'm trying to remember, you were with us when we were invested in that one fund. Well, I'll just say Coleman Marks Fund. And were you there when they introduced us to Steve, this guy who pitched us? on his alternative energy invention? I believe so. Was it the biofuel guy? Yes. Omen was there the first time around. Because there was a first time. There was an original. Yeah, there was a first time. There was like a dinner and then presentations and stuff. And this is a real technology. They wanted to lay down straps or whatever you call them on the LIE or whatever highway and get all the energy from the cars driving all over, over them. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of the train. And but I've read about that technology. It doesn't really work. Like you need like more energy to power that technology than the energy it gets. But then he had other things going on. His PowerPoint, I remember it. We were invested in this hedge fund and they wanted to pitch a deal to us. So we owned a shell. A shell is a public company that has no assets in it. But you could merge a real company into it, and then it that's a way of that company becoming public. And so these guys wanted to merge this biofuel company into our shell. And that's how they would bring this biofuel company public. And then they would fund it. 
I remember this guy, he had a PhD in something and he presented this PowerPoint and it was getting progressively more insane as every page turned. There was an all time <laughs> moment. And the fact that we're talking about this 15 years later, and Omid at this point is going to say he was not there probably when we say what was in that PowerPoint, <laughs> but he actually talked in the PowerPoint, right? About being able to teleport himself. Teleport through time. Oh, through time. <laughs> the next page was the time machine. <laughs> he literally, he literally said he had like a meeting in Dallas and he was working on a technology where he could teleport like through time. The fact that we just didn't walk away at that point. Yeah. As the person who wasn't there, now I'm going to be like the voice of the audience and yes. be like, be yes. like, how quickly did you stand up? How polite were you? on the way out. And did you take the, I, I imagine back then there was a printout of the deck that like on your way out, you emphatically threw it into the trash can. Here's the funny thing about this. The funny thing about it is we did leave. We did make fun of him for that, but we still thought maybe he had something <laughs> on the biofuels. <laughs> we thought he was going to change the whole energy yes. question in the U.S. forever. And we kind of just let the mad scientists crazy idea just kind of disappear a little bit. We thought, okay, that's what really crazy smart people, you know, they have some really dumb outlandish ideas like that, but maybe he was onto something. But he seemed super smart. Like he was explaining every chemical equation and physics equation. And he seemed like unbelievably smart. And so we wanted to believe him. And still to this day, I will sometimes call James and say, hey, do you think he was, did he believe himself or was he just crazy? And I don't know if we've still figured that out. I think he still might believe himself. The other litmus test is one of my favorite James sayings of all time was always, why do you need us? Yeah. Well, that was always a critical question. Right. Like yes. it was like that we'd be on some pitch. And I remember the specific one, there was some famous NFL player was also on board. Some startup was raising Not money. Walker, I hope. No, no but it was it was it might have been Joe Montana. No, no, it was Dan Marino. Dan Marino, right? And Dan Marino. Yeah, I met Dan Marino around then. Some company was like, "We have this great idea, and we've raised money from all these important people, billionaires, blah blah blah." And Dan Marino, and then the close is always like, "And now we just need your check in order yes. to create billions of dollars and take over the world." And that's when James was like. It's never a good sign if our check is the thing holding a company back from success. Right. Dan Marino and George Soros yeah. are sitting on their beds <laughs> with their phone right in front of them, waiting for a phone call. Is James in? Did he get in the right. deal yet? Right. right. So we could wire $10 million. Right. So I never understood that. Like, But here's the thing. Well, me, most of all, but Dan, I would say also, not as much you, Omid. I was a salesman. Like I was the one raising a lot of money or trying to raise money directly for the fund. And in every business I've had, I've been the one either raising money or doing a lot of the sales work. And so I think people who are always on for sales, they have a hard time getting pitched because I want people to like me. Yeah. And so when like, when this guy was saying, okay, well, the next page, the time machine, I'm like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Like, I can't help myself. So I, now when I go to pitches, I have to bring someone alongside of me to say no. Like, I can't do it by myself. But there was just enough stuff surrounding that scientist that we met. 
he had been in front of enough people. He had presented at a few big conferences. There was enough stuff around him where we kind of thought, all right, we're, we're not crazy. Maybe, you know, I mean, there other people have met with him and, you know, I think he was awarded some grants from some big companies or universities and, yeah, I think Shell or someone like that might have given him some money. Yeah, again, back in the fossil fuel space. I mean, it always it always comes back to that. I mean, and I visited his lab where they were doing like some gas to fuel stuff. He was literally the Theranos of the energy uh, uh, industry. And I'm allegedly, I'm not just saying this allegedly, not like, it's not a fact, it's my opinion. Yeah. But we were pitched all the time. There was another time, and Omar, this, is, this was related to what you were just saying. There was one time we were pitched about a tele, like our lawyer, had sent this deal to us. This guy was basically creating the whole telecom industry in Africa. And he was like, we're closing the round, but we're willing to let you guys in. And in the next round, Bill Clinton's coming in. And we just have to close this round first, and you're the last one. <laughs> and I just never understood this kind of pitch. I would never say that to anyone. Like, listen, Omid, if you come into this deal, then after that, Warren Buffett is... I've actually had texts where people have tried this trick with me. Warren, we're ready for your $500 million investment. We're just waiting to close the round. And as if they accidentally texted me instead of the intended Warren Buffett. So I've had that trick tried on me with people I knew. But I think we've all kind of over the last 15 or 20 years, I mean, sure, we've, we've had a number of clients, we've done it, but we've also gravitated towards just doing our own stuff with our own money. Yeah. Because I think we've all gotten to a point, and I know I've said this, where I've told people about stuff that we're all doing. And they're like, oh, that that sounds interesting. I'm like, no, you don't want to come into this. And they're like, what do you, you just sold me on it for 10 minutes and said, you put X. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't, I wouldn't put in if I was you. You know, and, and, and so it's, it's this funny, what, is that a sales tactic? I, you know, <laughs> that could be a sales tactic. So in all my years of debating with people about Bitcoin, you meet a lot of people who are like, it's worthless. It's going to zero, blah, blah, blah. And I, I never want to get I don't get into debates with people about investing. I know other, a lot of people in crypto are like, no, Bitcoin has value, inflation. It's going to the moon, whatever. I have found the most effective way to end that conversation is when someone says, I think Bitcoin is worthless and going to zero. I just said, you know what? You're right you should never, ever own Bitcoin. In fact, I would like for you to publicly declare that no matter what happens, you will never own a dollar worth of Bitcoin. And usually when I say that, they're like, oh, well, I didn't say never. I, just... I will say on that, when it comes to, to crypto, we've generally, and James has done, you know, has, has been involved more so than, than I have, but a lot of what we've done in crypto will happen directly after I have a phone conversation with Omen. So, and it's, and it's usually directly what what Omen has just has just told me about crypto. But it could be a sale. It could be a sales tactic when you do that. But it always, we've always kind of just on that note, like about the African deal. When we had our hedge fund early on, I usually would find myself saying to a prospective investor, "Hey, listen, if I was you, I'd." probably just see whatever the three or five hedge fund offerings Merrill Lynch has. I mean, I would just, I would just, it's, it's a safe play. Just go do that. I mean, that was our problem from the beginning is that you could never consider us the safe play, even though our returns were pretty steady, yeah. particularly the fund of hedge funds. We were not volatile at all. We usually were like one to 2% up 
every month. And then our down months were like a half a percent down, like very small down months. But because, and we've talked about this before, because of our lack of pedigree, except for Dan, I, we never worked, Oman and I never worked at a bank. We never worked at any other hedge fund other than our own. And there was no reason. I remember one time I met with a guy who was an investor and it was like very, looked like an investor. Like he had the silver hair, a, a bright red sweater, like super bright red sweater. And he meets me for lunch. And finally at the end of lunch, he's like, I can't put money with you. You have no business card. Your hair's a mess. You know, you don't have an office. I don't think we had our Fifth Avenue office yet. And you don't have a phone number. I'm going to call your house. Like what's, what's going on here? And he was right. Like we just weren't professionally set up that way, yeah. even though our returns were good. But that's also kind of speaks to, you talk about our steady returns in the hedge fund. I would say the same thing as when it comes to our VC investments, where we've done well, but it's been very, like VCs are, we don't have a fund per se where if you look at our 25 or 30 deals, you have a situation where if someone wanted to come in with us on all 30 deals, they would have done well. But it's so hard where you run into someone and you say, hey, we have a new deal we're looking at. And they're like, oh, yeah, we know you've done deals. And you kind of want to say, well, you can't just do a one-off. I mean, the one-offs are hard. You yeah. kind of have to do a little bit of everything. And we have that on our end. Omid probably has the greatest VC deal of all three of us. And I have 10 emails from him and probably can say I had 10 phone conversations inviting us into it. And I have them. And I'm not disappointed or anything about it. I'm just talking about it publicly. But it's a very, very successful, great home run deal. Wait, well, I think I've heard about the deal. I think Dan told me, but what was the deal? You want to describe it? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But... It was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. 
So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I don't want to name names for various reasons, but I will just say that I do think it's much better to be lucky than good because at the early days of the crypto world, I was also managing a family-owned property in Brooklyn where we had like half a dozen tenants. And one of them was this young guy who was into all sorts of different tech stuff, including blockchain. And we chat from time to time about random stuff. And when he was moving out, he was like, oh, by the way, I'm co-starting a uh, blockchain infrastructure company and I'm going to be the CTO and we're raising money. And I was like, oh, OK, that, that's interesting. Picks and shovels, etc." And I did not do much due diligence because I didn't even know how. Like, unlike you guys, I didn't have the background or experience. I just met with the co-founder and heard about the vision. And I was like, OK, that sounds good. And I believe I was their first outside investor in the pre-seed round. And in the last couple of years, they've done very well. They raised like a... We would have been the second, James. Man, <laughs> I, I've heard about the returns of this deal. That would have been good. But, but you're right. It's hard to predict. And here's the other thing about private investing is that it takes a long time. Like good companies don't want to IPO. They don't want to sell because they're doubling revenues every year 
why would they slow themselves down by selling to a Microsoft or IPOing and then having the returns of the stock market? Yes. We're in the 13th year of at least two deals that we're in. There's drag. There, there's that. There's the time component where can you imagine if you have 10 or 15 people that are that are in these deals and they're calling you on deals? There's no updates ever. We know that. But there's also a lot that goes into it where OMID did very well on this deal where there were additional rounds and there were additional times where OMID would reach out and we'd talk about it and there'd be, you know, at higher valuations and, and you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure. And he was very smart about adding, but doing it in a smart way and doing the due diligence and doing the work. Like there's a lot that goes into it where he could bring the next nine or 10 deals he sees to us. None of them may work, you know? And so right. it's hard to kind of, you know, pick and choose when it, when it comes to, to VCs. So again, it just, the, the point I'm making is it's the same with our hedge fund where um, there's just certain aspects of it where you just might not want a bunch of LPs or a bunch of clients that are calling you all the time that aren't, don't understand what it means to either be in these private deals or where there's kind of peaks and valleys. I just think people are more used to that if they're just kind of blindly in the stock market because they see it on the news every day. They see the headlines. Oh, Putin's causing this, you know, and they can kind of just go back to their regular job and, and say, oh, that's the stock market. That's what happens. But if they're in a private hedge fund or if they're in a VC that we have, that's something that I think most people don't quite understand the timing and the ups and downs. And for us to kind of explain it to them, I think is a little more difficult to understand. Then there's the fraud aspect. And Omid, this was a little after your time, but at, at one point we were like, okay, let's try to do faster deals instead of these private investing. So this guy calls us and he has $20 million worth of Twitter stock to sell. This is before Twitter went public. So Twitter was going to go public in a year or two after this. And everybody knew it was going to be a huge markup from where the last VC funding was. It would be a great return if you could buy Twitter shares essentially at a big discount. And so this guy had $20 million worth of Twitter shares that he needed to cash out of in order to fund some real estate development in Chicago. And we found a hedge fund that was interested in buying these shares. And we would have maybe participated in this deal somehow, maybe got some shares ourselves or whatever. Like, who is this guy? Well, this is going to sound, anybody listening to this is going to think, oh, this is classic email from the prince of whatever. This guy said he was the son of the doctor of the king of whatever, some king in the Middle East, might have been Saudi Arabia, but he was the son of the doctor. So, okay, you think that's a red flag, but we kind of researched it. The, all the names were legit. We didn't call the father or anything, but the names matched up. We said, can you send the, your Twitter shares? He had like a certificate, you know, signed by the CFO of the company or whoever signs these things. And he had a valid certificate for his Twitter shares. We called the Chicago real estate project and yeah, they were waiting for his money. It was in the news, this real estate project. We knew it was a legit real estate project. We called his bank supposedly. Yeah. He's got these Twitter shares. Everything's legit. This is a real bank. And we found the, the fund and the fund said, okay, we need even a bigger discount. It was like a 50% discount to where he wanted to sell it. Okay. And the guy said, sure, I just need the $20 million or the $10 million, whatever. And so the fund was about to wire. And I remember they were about to wire the 10, 15, $20 million, however much it worked out to be. And I remember Josh calls me and says, something just smells a little bit funny. He agreed too easily to all our terms. And I'm just feeling a little nervous. 
And Josh says, James, you know the CFO of Twitter, right? How about we ask this guy for the CFO's phone number so we can just confirm with the CFO? So we call the guy, and the guy's like, oh, no problem. Yeah, here's the CFO's phone number, Neil's something. And so, so we call the CFO of Twitter, and he's talking to us. Yeah, I'm the CFO of Twitter, and this guy is a shareholder. He participated in one of our early rounds. And then I wasn't saying anything. And then Josh from the hedge fund said, hey, Niels, by the way, your friend James is on the phone. And then click, guy hung up. Nobody ever answered from every, any phone number again. And we, we had been minutes away from wiring $20 million. And so the FBI got involved, everything involved. But that was a huge fraud. You know, and it was a lot of professionals were falling for it. There was the broker in the middle. I had to call him and say, you, you need to stop talking to this guy. He's a complete criminal. There was the hedge fund. They had like a team of people doing due diligence on this and everything they were uncovering was legit. Well, and at the time, a lot of these deals with a lot of these large unicorn tech deals that were pre-IPO, those deals were floating around. It wasn't an uncommon thing. Yeah, Facebook, Uber, we were seeing all those deals. There were tons. And those deals were happening with hedge funds and with other private outfits. Banks were involved. I mean, on Twitter especially, right? There was a big story about Chris Saka doing the kind of roll-up of the private Twitter shares before they went public. Oh, yeah. He he started a fund, right? Like JP Morgan funded him or Morgan Stanley, one of those, where all he was doing was buying pre-IPO shares of all of those companies, like Uber, Airbnb, Twitter, Facebook. And so we figured this was just one of those deals. Yeah, I remember another one was a big Facebook deal. None of these deals ever worked for us. We didn't make a dime on anything. If you think about all the things we worked on, this is also the difference between the kind of lifestyle we all had during this whole 20-year period and the difference between that and having a job, we would work so hard on things, 60 hours a week sometimes, with no money in sight and no money ever appearing for most of these deals. Yeah, there was a lot of hustle involved, but that's what happens when you know, you don't have that pedigree. I wonder if there would have been a better way to like use our time more effectively. <laughs> like, you know, for instance, I'm a tech guy by background. I should have been like writing some software or something instead of trying to sell some Saudi Arabian prince's doctor's son's Twitter shares. Like, what was I doing doing that? Well, I mean, you know, I would argue Omid kind of took that path with crypto where he kind of dove into that, you know, and, and understood it at a very early time. Well, and also because of all of our adventures and misadventures together and then my misadventures trying to be a trader and run a fund and stuff, it was a good hard lesson to not go the investment route or the money management route or the trading route with crypto because I tried it before and failed. And I don't mean just failed financially. I think actually like my returns were okay. But the point that you just made, James, one of the things that dawned on me when I was in my late 20s about trading is that it's one of the few professions where you can work 100 hours a week for a month and then turn around and be like, oh, shoot, I would have been much better off if I just went on vacation. And I might have been like wealthier if I went on vacation and blew 10 grand on expensive luxury stuff because my trading ended up being a lot worse than that. So that's one reason I myself decided after that, like I never want to be in the money game again. I want to do things where you want to earn a living, right? And maybe even like make a lot of money. But the contribution that you make, whatever that might be, can be measured in some kind of a non 
financial way. I agree. Like, I feel like from 2000 to 2010, my sole motivation, and it includes a lot of the stories we've already talked about, my sole motivation was to make money. I didn't really care about the social benefits to what I was doing. I mean, that, there weren't bad social benefits, but there weren't positive ones either. My only motivation was making money. And even though we had a lot of fun times and happy experiences, I was pretty miserable most of the time. And then from 2010, I started writing my own story. I had, I had cut back my expenses a lot because I was going broke again and after the financial crisis. And I just was a lot happier because I was writing my own story instead of writing some stupid story about Apple stock or McDonald's stock or whatever. And that's what really catapulted me to more success is that people liked what I was writing and it was helpful to people. It wasn't just, oh, here's a stock you should buy. And I wasn't managing any money. We were doing a lot of private investing, but it wasn't like a, an institutional thing. And it's just a much easier life. Even in the private investing, I feel like we've kind of trended towards companies that are having a positive effect in society, right? I mean, it's not that we necessarily looked for that, but maybe we did a little subconsciously, but it's turned out that a lot of our best private companies that we're invested in, you know, we believe in. And you know, it's interesting, our worst deals were the ones where we were greedy, where we said, oh, we could have this deal for ourselves. We're going to take a third of the company. And those deals would instantly go out of business. That's right. And also any deal where I went on the board, those were always painful experiences. And then around 2014 or 2013, I refused to go on boards anymore. It was just too much work. It was too much headache. We're not talking about altruism, right? Like it's not about whether it's like me, James, when you first started writing and blogging and then podcasting, you touched a lot of people. I remember back then, like random people would reach out to me who knew I had once worked for you. And they were like, Oh, you know, I I listened, I read James's blog or read one of his books, and it really had a personal impact on my personal choices. I made a big career decision because of it or something. But the argument here isn't go out and do things that are good for other people for some moral or ethical reason. I think we're all agreeing that it's about the personal sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that you get doing those things, which to me particularly stand out in situations where you didn't make money. So, you know, like most of my angel investing, like any angel investing has resulted in nothing and the company's failed. But to the extent where I try to filter by only investing in people that I believe in, it's not as bad because I'm like, I lost a bit of money. That's what you expect most of the time. But so-and-so I thought was a decent person with a good idea. And I'm glad that I contributed to them trying something. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, there's supposedly in, in positive psychology, there's three components to well-being, which is autonomy, which most of the decisions you make are your own decisions as opposed to being ordered to do something. There's community. So how you get along with the people around you and there's mastery. And I think when we were doing the Wall Street stuff, we had very little of all three. <laughs> like we didn't really have autonomy because we were just glued to the screens. We were, and our investors were yelling at us if we had one tick down and we were just, we were prisoners to what we were doing. We didn't have community because Wall Street's not a community. It's just a horrible place metaphorically because it's not one place. And I would say, okay, there's an element of mastery in that we were getting better as investors, getting better at understanding you know, I gave a, a talk the other day at university about 
entrepreneurship and investing. And we learned a lot compared to what people who even major in finance graduate with. We learned an enormous amount about how the system works. But I wouldn't really call that mastery because it wasn't something I was interested in mastering. It wasn't something that, you know, the very first time I went into business for myself, I was at HBO and I left HBO to to make websites, but I really just wanted to make a TV show at HBO. And but I kind of got sucked into doing this because there was money there. I I loved the internet stuff, but there was so much money. And then I had to, you know, once you get into that, it's hard to pull back, even though you, I hated every moment of being in business. Yeah. The thing I'll touch on that that I thought about when you just said those three kind of tenets for me, and I think for all of us nowadays, the autonomy is is everything, right? I mean, I, I think that's a reason why we do things the way we do it, where we don't necessarily have a lot of clients or really none. I mean, we'll have friends every now and then co-invest, but you don't have to answer to anyone, right? You don't have to discuss a deal. We can look at a deal. As Omid said, if we like a CEO, like that CEO's vision, and we want to back that CEO, we can do it. We can feel good about it. And that's that. We don't have to talk to a customer. We don't have to explain a return. We don't have to convince someone of a product or upside. It's, it's, that's refreshing to me. And you really focus on autonomy. Like Basically, after 9-11, you stayed in New York City in a few more months, and then you cut the cord. Yeah. Like You moved literally back into your parents' house into your parents' basement. Yeah. It's fantastic. We were still working together. Like all three of us were working together and you built up from that. And I also, I moved out of the city like in order to cut costs, but you totally cut the cord. You never left your parents' basement. Yeah, no. <laughs> and we're still doing all the same stuff, but for all I know, your office is still in your mom's basement. I don't know. It is still in my parents' basement. <laughs> why, would I, why would I change that? Yeah, it it works. Ruth says we'd still live at my parents if it was up to me with, you know, with all four kids. So just to be clear, you live across the street. That's right. No, wait, wait. Now your house, your new house borders. Yeah. Yeah. Your parents yeah. house. So you did live across the street for a while and then you made a big move. Yeah. Now you now your fence borders That's your right. parents house. That's right. Because it was all it used to be your grandma's house. You live in That's now right. and your brother's house is next door to yeah. that. And that's because, I mean, I do. I think we see value in that. I mean, you talked about that, but there's, it's obviously a, a personal thing, but it's just when you make an investment and you do the due diligence and you take a look at the deal and you try to understand it, there's something to be said where you make that commitment and you don't talk to anyone else about it. You don't have to explain it. You're not two years in where you have a bunch of people saying, what's going on? Why isn't it working? Or when are we going to see an exit? There's a lot of satisfaction that you can make that commitment and realize a return. You know, we've done this for 20 years now. You really do eat what you kill. I mean, no one sent us a check for 20 years. No one pays for our health insurance. No one does any of that. And that's satisfying when you can do that. You know, and it's fascinating for me to pop onto LinkedIn every now and then, right? And you just see the, I mean, it's just relentless every day, just the connection. And I'm so proud of you at your new job that you moved up a floor at the corporation. And I, I mean, it's just, <laughs> no one really likes that, do they? No one enjoys that. And the thing is also, 55 million people were laid off during COVID. So it's not like the job is safer than what we did. 
you know, it's a different kind of misery also. Like you have corporate politics and, and so on. Well, only I mean, you went worked at a job. Like you were the crypto guy at, at Citigroup. Like how'd that happen? Well, it happened like all great things in life, also by accident that a friend of mine was working or, or doing like a temporary stint at City Ventures, which was a corporate VC arm of Citibank. And in his last week, he was like, hey, you just got a new book that came out. Some of my colleagues here care about crypto. Do you want to meet them? And I only said yes, because at the time, the City Ventures office was a five minute bike ride from where I live. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take a five minute bike ride. And then I met with someone and we had a nice chat. And at the end of it, she was like, you're hired. And I was like, for what? Like, I didn't even know <laughs> what I was applying for. And she's like, oh, well, I need someone that can write about this stuff mostly and maybe take a few meetings and can hire you as a contractor and it pays X. And I was like, wow, like I write about crypto for free and this bank is going to pay me like $100 an hour to write articles. I was like, sure, okay. Did you have to show up at the office? I didn't think so. And then they're like, here's your cubicle. And I'm like, do I need to be here? They're like, no, but if you want to. What ended up happening is what began as this like a side gig, just mostly writing. It ended up with me spending three and a half years there. And it was it was a great run. I worked with a lot of wonderful people, particularly at City Ventures, but also across the bank. And I got to do some pretty cool stuff just because crypto was weird and different and nobody understood it. So even though I was a contractor who wasn't even on the org chart, I got to be involved with some fairly like senior level decision making and learning and then to like firsthand witness all of the controversies about like everything pertaining to crypto. And it forced me to learn about how the existing financial system works which was very valuable. I feel like too many crypto people just dismiss why like banks are the way they are. But if you want to try to improve it, you need to understand it first. You can't dismiss it. All of that said, by the time I left, just because I'd been there long enough to be pulled into the bureaucracy and the politics and the endless Zoom meetings and working groups that designate other working groups to come up with action plans for a new working group. There is something personally for me that was so soul sucking, even though the people were all great or 90% of them were great, but there was just something about being part of that like giant corporate machine that I will never, ever go back to. I don't care what the job is. I don't care what the pay is. And I think, James, it goes back to your three models of happiness where like the bigger the company you work in, the less of the first one you have. Because like yeah. you don't get to set your schedule. All the other people who want to have meetings right. and whatever set your schedule. And then, frankly, like I feel like if you work in finance, you're naturally going to have less of a sense of like fulfillment about the work that you did because the baker can always say, I baked a cake and the teacher can say, I taught some kindergartners. But if you just worked on some new financial product, which might economically serve a very important purpose, I just feel like it's too abstract for you to take a lot of pride in and stuff like that. And I'm amazed that like there are so many people out there because at City, I work with some very smart people whose talents and whatnot were clearly in demand in fintechs and crypto. And I would have conversations with them about this and be like, hey, you know, you're a payments expert or a regulatory expert. And, and Wall Street, people might not know this, Wall Street does not pay well anymore comparatively. Like it's, everything's been regulated to death. 
The banks are boring. They're not very profitable. Did Wall Street ever pay well? Yeah, I think leading up to the financial crisis, you could do very well. I mean, it was volatile. That was always the trade-off. But what's funny is like now it's still volatile. Finance is just very cyclical. But the banks just don't pay that well. And if they do, it's in like deferred comp that you have to stay for years to get and whatnot. But I would have conversations with people and I'd be like, hey, if you want to leave, you can go to, it doesn't have to be like an early stage startup. It could be like a fintech that just raised money at a billion dollar valuation and you'd have more freedom, make more money and be doing more interesting work. But a lot of the people I met, there's something they found comforting about this like giant corporate bureaucracy that doesn't change much from day to day. Well, I've seen this a lot where if you work at a big corporation that spans the globe, like let's say Citigroup, it's worth tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. It has offices in every city on the planet. It flies its executives around in private jets. If you're staying in a hotel, you're staying in the penthouse of the Ritz in Tokyo or Hong Kong or whatever. So as you rise up in, it doesn't matter if it's Citigroup or Reuters or HBO, if you're starting to get to those executive ranks, you're going to live like a billionaire without being a billionaire. So they do take care of their top people. They're not loyal to their top people, but they do take care of their top people, whether it's through direct salary or through perks. And so I think that's the benefit of working and putting in the 20 years rising up at a large corporation if you can survive it. I'll say this though. What's interesting about Omid's time at Citibank, which was, which was fascinating from afar, is there was really no distinct role. Like at those banks, you come in at a certain level and it is pretty much projected how you're going to move up, right? Every two years you get promoted, you know, but what was fascinating, it's because Omid had such a unique skill set when it came to crypto is, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I'm allowed to say it or not. I won't say what some of the meetings were, but I mean, Omid, you got pulled in on some meetings that were oh, yeah. enormous with global players that were out of this world. I mean, the largest global players you can imagine looking at the crypto space and Omid's in a cubicle on the 27th floor, maybe with no windows, you know, <laughs> and they're like, like in terms of like dollars being managed by someone you were on the phone with, what's the largest phone call you had? Oh, it's, well, there were sovereign it's wealth inf funds. Infinite. So there were there were there were billions upon billions. But this this is actually like Dan makes a good point about a important lesson that I learned by accident, which is, you, you know, like Peter Thiel's whole zero to one theory. Yeah. You can probably enumerate it better than I can. But it's basically like invent your own thing so you don't have to compete with other people. Right. And I think there is a career version of that because. Purely by luck and happenstance, I happened to be an expert on a very new and very confusing thing at a very old institution whose clients was everyone all over the world. And I learned this lesson that like, you know, if I was a foreign exchange expert or like an analyst on energy stocks or even like someone that really knew the minutiae of how banks handle checking accounts, there would be 10,000 other people like me in a place like City all of which or most of which would be smarter and more experienced. So now like I have to work my way up the list of 10,000 in order to be the guy who ends up on that right. big meeting. But literally like someone from some fund or client or country or whatever would call the bank and be like, well, we want to learn more about Bitcoin or what's going on with stable coins. And when I first started, I was like one of five people that would 
you know, I was on a list somewhere. Like that guy knows something. So I got these great opportunities. There was even one time where there was like a working group that was putting together a report to present to the board about like a fundamental potential shift in the bank's overall strategy with certain business lines. And the list goes out, like, here are all the people who are on this working group. And it's like, so-and-so, who's the Henry global... Kissinger, <laughs> Omen Malachan. Well, the best is, not only was I the last person on the list, but whoever put it together, like, didn't know my last name and didn't even bother looking it up. So, so it was just Omen X. <laughs> that was it. It was like, you know, oh Jane God. Doe, John Smith, and all recognizable names. And then the last name on the list. That's and I was like, this is great. Like, can I, can I now officially, like... Have everybody at the bank. You need a t-shirt with that list yeah. on right. it. Omid <laughs> X. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at You know, but it's interesting. That's a generational thing almost because 25 years earlier, I was that person for the internet for a company like Time Warner yeah. and, you know, because HBO was part of Time Warner. So I was the guy at Time Warner. There were like 10 people in New York City who knew how to make a website in 1994. And I was one of them, which made it natural for me to, that was my first business. But I was an employee at Time Warner and nobody knew anything about the internet. So I was helping every division make their own websites, intranets, whatever. and. Dan, you were in the middle of these two generations. When you kind of came out of school, the internet was already happening. Yeah. Crypto and wireless hadn't yet right. happened. You were kind of just yeah. loading. There was there was nothing for you to be the expert in. That's why everyone at the time wanted to go to Wall Street. It was the best, safest route. And that's the thing with banking, right? If you got in, right, there was a certain hurdle you had to meet. You had to go to the right school with the right GPA. But if you got in and you were just willing to put your head down and just kind of block and tackle and grind through it, yeah, you'll do well. You'll get paid. You'll stick around. But it is a brutal, brutal kind of long-term path. And it's, it's not prestigious anymore. Like Dan and I are very close to age. So the thing I remember vividly is when I graduated college, the most prestigious job to land was that Wall Street sell-side analyst program job, in part yeah. because the buy side didn't really exist yet. The right. whole like hedge fund thing and private equity thing hasn't taken off, hadn't taken off yet, so there weren't many jobs. And I will tell you now that I actually teach business school students, very few of them want to go work at a big bank. 
Yeah, there's no reason right now. Yeah, no. I can understand why most industries are not getting employees because, A, who's working as a marketing manager for Procter & Gamble anymore? Like zero people are probably applying for that job. And banking, like when I hear Dan's horror stories about what he had to do working at a bank, it's awful. It's not worth the money. And you can make more money, like you say, I'm doing some fintech thing or some crypto thing. I do think, though, if one was inclined to start a hedge fund, now is the time to do it with crypto. The money's there. You don't have to have the pedigree because there is no pedigree for this. <laughs> and if you have a, a vision of the future that is is you think is correct and you can convince people of it, you should start a crypto hedge and fund. And I have friends who've done it recently. And what is also interesting is that there is actually alpha to be had in crypto. You can't be too big. Yeah, because nobody knows. Nobody because knows. There, because there's enough people now, who, there's enough people who disagree on crypto that creates returns. Disagreement creates returns. Everyone agrees Apple's a good company, so that limits the returns Apple will have. Some people think Tesla's the god of companies, and some people think it's just an average company. So that means Tesla might have some more returns in it. But the gulf between people who believe in crypto and don't believe that crypto even is a thing is so huge that spread makes for huge returns. And within the category of those who are willing to admit that it's an asset class worth exposure to, there is this fascinating bias that I see it every day now. Like companies would plow or funds or institutional investors would plow large amounts of money into some private startup that's doing something in crypto that has like hardly any revenues and already has a $5 billion valuation. And then I would be like, why don't they just buy Bitcoin? It's down 50% from its all time. And the one thing you can say about Bitcoin is it's probably not going away. Whereas most crypto related startups, like most startups will go away. And the most striking example of this was there were all these poorly run or downright shady crypto companies that blew up a few months ago, one of them was Celsius, the very badly run crypto bank. And there was a Canadian pension fund that had invested $200 million into the oh overpriced gosh. equity of a unregulated, unregistered crypto bank run by tech people. And I really want like, I wish I had been in that conversation when they were making, because surely someone was like, wait, Shouldn't we just buy Bitcoin? But I'm sure their response was, wait, no, no, we can't. If we buy Bitcoin, that's too simple. It's not even simple. It's it's like the regulators will have to explain to like the teachers whose money we invest, how like proof of work mining is not boiling the oceans. And then we don't even know what custodian we would use because the bank that we use for custody doesn't support Bitcoin. So all goes back to James's point. There's a lot of biased capital in crypto. And all you have to look and be like, there are too many people that are too limited in how they're willing to get exposure, which means all the other ways you can get exposure might be undervalued. Yeah. All right. So let's start a crypto hedge fund (laughs) and we'll have crypto insane stories eventually to tell. So, oh my God, you wouldn't believe this one investor. And because the, the crypto billionaires are also kind of crazy too. A lot of those initial crypto Oh, they're people. crazier. I already have crypto insane stories that even like some of my, some of my angel investing in crypto that have been this roller coaster ride where like at any moment in time, it's not clear whether this is like a total 
home run that's the best investment I've ever made or it's a complete zero. And because of the rapid evolution of the industry and the machinations of the crypto market, I've already like been up and down five times. I'd be like, nope, zero. I'd be like, oh, wait, no, huge home run. Nope, zero. Is it stressful to you? It's not for two reasons. One, my general expectation when I do any kind of angel investing is that it goes to zero. I literally like I have a spreadsheet where I write it down to zero the day I make the investment and it can only go up from that. That's the opposite. As soon as we make a 20K investment, it's worth $4 million <laughs> <laughs> on our spreadsheet. That would stress me out. But the other thing is 50% of my investing has to do with seeking a financial return. The rest of it is just as a, as a professional educator, consultant who works in the space. I use my investing to build my personal network. So there are situations where I will invest. I'm like, it's a good company. I like the team. I think they could succeed. However... I think my personal brand and network would grow with an affiliation with them as an investor, even if it doesn't work out. And that not only does it like de-risk things for me in general, but psychologically it makes it easier when I look at it and be like, oh, yeah, I lost money on that. But I have a good friend now who used to work at that company and that might not have happened if I wasn't an early investor. All right. Fair enough. That's a good way to think about it. Well, I think we've kind of gone through most of our Wall Street Insane stories. Yes, we have. I know there's ones we've missed, which we're basically not allowed to talk about. But other than that, I think... It's been a good run. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot more criminals. If we just wanted to list the criminals, there's a lot more people we could have <laughs> talked about. But some of the stories are basically the same as other stories. Right. Just a lot of bad people doing bad things in a shady industry. Right. And somehow or other, I mean, I don't even want to say... We were the most ethical people because who knows, but we never did anything wrong. Like just by action alone, we were the most ethical people. I think in part because we just had no clue what was going on, that everyone was doing all this crap around us. We had no idea how diseased it was until later. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. There's a lot of unethical and downright criminal behavior that goes on every day, but you just have to be kind of aware and do the work on it. And early on, we thought we did the work, but I think we got progressively much better at that as the years went by. Yeah. And that's why we had to get out of the business because we realized there was no safe place. Yeah. Like I would never put my money in a hedge fund. But again, in my take on all this with what Oma was just talking about, there is probably a ton of alpha in the crypto space right now, but you're going to find probably the most successful funds out there. And I don't mean success by return, but probably the biggest funds that, you know, have the most assets under management is going to be whatever fund that can go to these other huge outfits, banks, institutions that finally look at that pie chart and say, okay, we need our 3% crypto exposure. Who can we go to that we feel comfortable with? Right. And they just give $5 yes. billion to a guy who's going to buy Bitcoin Thank and you. Ethereum. And so it's the same <laughs> thing you see in the hedge fund space that we complain about, right. where all the brightest hedge funds that you say, oh man, that, that guy's a genius. And you see their top 10 holdings and it's Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla. And you're like, wait, why are they getting paid two and 20 for that? Those are just the 10 largest tech names or, you know, that's going to be the same in crypto. You're going to see these huge funds and they're going to own Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever the top 10 crypto players are. And I'm not saying there aren't always going to be other funds that do something special that have a, an advantage or a skill set where they can create. But the largest players 
aren't even going to mess with them. They're going to say, just give us our crypto exposure. We know you're safe. We know you're trustworthy. You're doing it the right way and we're done. And so that's why the upstarts, the young guys that are going to come into the space thinking they can do something are probably going to have these same stories we have 20 years from now because they're going to be jumping around and they're not going to have the pedigree. and Right. Aren't trading on like Polka Dot and Shiba Inu and all these weird things. Well, Omid, hook us up at Citigroup. We're, we're, we we'll, need that pedigree. <laughs> we'll take in 20 billion. The doors open at Formula Crypto Holding. I was thinking more like it's time to dust off your, what was it? Was it your first book, Trade Like a Hedge Fund? Trade Like a Hedge Fund, yeah. Trade Like a Crypto yeah. Hedge Fund now. Some of the strategies, like the point that Dan made is already coming to fruition that there are more and more of these like passive crypto funds being set up where they're like, we're just going to invest in the top 10 coins by market cap or something. And there's a lot of reasons why that's just a dumb thing to do. But I think one of your things was the Russell 2000 rebalancing trade, right, James? Like you buy the stocks that were being kicked out of the Russell and something like that. I bet that's going to start working for crypto. Yeah, it already is. I mean, there's something called the Coinbase effect that if you could anticipate the coins that are going to be uplisted to Coinbase, you'll make a lot of money. It doesn't work as well in a bear right. market, of course, but it works that's in a bull a market. Surprise thing that there've been. We now know people who like in an insider trading kind of way. I'm literally talking about like I saw today that Franklin Templeton is launching a two different passive crypto funds that like RIAs can put their clients in. And it, it's literally formulaic. Like every month we will rebalance to make sure we have the top 10. It was like top 10 coins that are not stable coins or meme coins or something, right? I would not be surprised, just like the Russell 2000, that there becomes a profitable trade if you're small enough that you're like, oh, at the end of every month, because of the rebalancings that go on, buy this coin and sell that coin and you'll generate alpha. That's a good yeah. idea, Roman. Yeah. All right. Well, so new new book idea for you. Or new hedge fund strategy idea. <laughs> Let's keep our minds right. open. <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, thanks so much. Wall Street Insane. I think we'll have to figure out some other series to do after this, but I think that's most of our insane stories, or at least the ones we're willing to share. So we'll have to figure out the next set of topics. But thanks again for coming on the show. I was listening, by the way, to Trailer Jay, Jay made, and it was refreshing to hear myself laugh so much. <laughs> I feel like I haven't done that in a while. And this has been a a fun set of episodes. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. money on everything for your projects now at menards we have it all for garden and landscaping essentials visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance say big on lattice panel options at menards view our entire selection of garden center products today on menards.com The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.